Hello and welcome to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus and I'm glad that you've joined me for this episode of the podcast. Today we're going to be talking a little bit more about wokeness and social justice. Now in a previous episode, I talked a little bit about 10 markers of cultural Marxism, which is a related concept. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. But in this episode, it's actually going to be a two-part episode. We're going to firstly look at some of the terminology surrounding wokeness, right? Woke culture and social justice, so that we can have a good understanding of what we're talking about. And in the second episode, we're going to go into a little bit more in detail about how wokeness and social justice is actually a competing religion, another worldview. It's a whole other worldview that is against the gospel, against Christianity. And I want you to see that clearly. So without any further ado, let's jump into today. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. All right, so wokeness is perhaps the most culturally hot topic phrase, right? When we speak about, you know, cultural issues today. Uh, Professor Owen Strand, in his book, Christianity and Wokeness, he defines it like this. He says, quote, Wokeness is first and foremost a mindset and a posture. The term itself means that one is awake to the, f- to the true nature of the world when so many are asleep. In the most specific terms, this means one sees the comprehensive inequity of our social order and strives to, the hi- to highlight the power structures in society that stem from racial privilege. So a couple of really important concepts there, the concept of in- inequity right, of our social order and highlighting power structures. Now, he uses it in terms of racial privilege, but you know it's usually used by its proponents uh, to describe someone uh, who's been awoken or awakened to the various perceived societal injustices in areas as diverse as sexuality, gender, feminism, queer theory and LGBTQ studies, racism, and social justice, um, post-colonialism, disability and fat studies, along with a whole other host of more, you know, what might be called leftist sort of causes. Environmentalism and climate change are even thrown into there sometimes. Uh, And one of its main aims, the main aims of wokeness or woke ideology, is that achieving a humanistic utopia of radical egalitarianism via the breaking down of all distinctions and disparities in all areas of society and life. So it's often connected with social justice, which is a term that I'll unpack a little bit more later in this episode. And perhaps one of the most well-known causes associated with woke ideology and wokeness in general in recent times has been the Black Lives Matter movement. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. But first, let's talk a little bit about its infiltration into the church. This problem of wokeness is not just something that's out there in societies and culture, but in many ways it's infiltrated the church and evangelicalism today. A few quick examples will illustrate this. A popular evangelical pastor and author, Dr. Tony Evans, in his book, Kingdom Race Theology, he writes this, quote, While an individual today 
may not be personally racist, they can contribute to racist structures by supporting the inequitable systems still in place or by denying that they exist. If you are a non-racist yourself, but do not actively oppose racism, willing to speak or work against racism and racist structures where they show up, you are failing to fulfill the whole letter of the law of love. That's what Dr. Evans says. Now note what Evans is arguing, right? He's arguing that you can have racism without actual racists, right? Because one is automatically guilty just by merely belonging to a certain ethnic group and not taking up an activist role, right? This sort of thinking is actually not dissimilar to the famous uh, critical race theory author of the uh, New York Times bestseller called White Fragility, right? And the author is Robin D'Angelo. And she says that racism is unavoidable and is impossible to completely escape having developed problematic and racial assumptions and behaviors. And speaking of herself, now D'Angelo is white, she says, I also understand that there is no way for me to avoid enacting problematic racial patterns. You see, just because she's white or just because you are white, if you happen to be white, um, you are part of the problem in their thinking. Right? The New York Times number one best-selling book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by the prop popular critical race theory activist Ibram X. Kendi, he writes this, quote, the opposite of racist isn't not racist, it's anti-racist. What's the difference? One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the, the root of problems in power and policies as an anti-racist. One either allows racial inequities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. There's no in-between safe space of not racist. So notice what he's saying there. You have to be an activist if you don't want to be a racist in the book, right? Woke ideology promotes a sort of activism, which turns into a, a sort of um, works-based righteousness that is antithetical to the true gospel. See, Kindi has also been on record explicitly rejecting what he calls savior theology, which is just denying, rep he denies repentance and faith in Christ as man's primary need in favor of a form of black liberation theology. Yet in his, his books and videos have been popularized all over evangelicalism and churches have even been recommending his books. Other popular evangelical voices such as Eric Mason and J.D. Greer, Tim Keller, Jamar Tisby and Matt Chandler have also lent their voices in support of movements and tenets of woke ideologies. The book Divided by Faith has been hugely influential in bringing woke ideology into evangelicalism, yet it landed at the top of the Gospel Coalition's 2016 recommended reading list on the topic of racial division. The book Prophetic Lament, promoting woke ideology by Suru Chan Ra in 2015, was listed as one of its top 10 books by Relevant Magazine. Now, Relevant Magazine has not been the bastion of conservative Christianity, but they're a very popular um, outlet. Daniel Hill's book, White Awake, in 2017, was backed by InterVarsity Press and the Christian Community Development Association, the CCDA. Now, let me qualify some things, right? This is not to say that all of the pastors and leaders that I've um, given as examples before, um, as having affirmed something woke, right? Not saying that they've abandoned the gospel and gone apostate necessarily, right? 
Um, some, with the exception perhaps of Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo, some are brothers in Christ who have historically affirmed an Orthodox and Protestant gospel. Right? They affirm the five solas, yet they've stumbled into serious errors on these issues. And while they've produced many helpful materials, right, which we are very thankful for, thankful to God for them, uh, there have also been areas of disagreement right, where they've been less than biblical and less than helpful. And we pray that they would see their error and repent. Okay, so the point here is not to call all of these people false brethren, right? Uh, the point here, rather, is to illustrate that this problem of wokeness is not irrelevant to us today in the church. And it's not a problem that's just out there in culture, but it's also made its way into the evangelical church in significant ways. Many unwitting and immature Christians can be taken captive by this philosophy, especially when it's coming from teachers that they trust using language that sounds biblical and compassionate. And this is nothing new. Even the early church was battling false teaching from the very beginning. See, every generation has its battles and its battlegrounds. And this, this is one of ours. The goal of this episode is not to exhaustively define all of the various topics within wokeness and social justice, but rather is to equip you with the basics that you need to understand, recognize, and respond to. Right? There are certain core markers which can be helpful to us as disciple makers and Christians to recognize points of concern and help those that we're walking with to form a biblical worldview on these topics. So in this first episode, we're going to examine some of the terminology surrounding woke culture and social justice. And in the next episode, we'll take a look at how it's actually a different religion and a competing worldview. So let's first start off by understanding some of the terms of woke ideology, because there's a lot of terms which are thrown around in these discussions. So it's important to clearly define the concepts behind much of woke culture. And my hope is that it'll help you uh, help to alert you and to spot like, you know, when this sort of thinking might be influencing um, the way our culture and even some Christians talk about these concepts. So let's first start off with postmodernism. One of the most important terms to understand in discussing wokeness is postmodernism. The online um, Encyclopedia Britannica it defines postmodernism like this as a late 20th century movement characterized by broad skepticism, subjectivism, or relativism, a general suspicion of reason, an acute sensitivity to the role of ideology in asserting and maintaining political and economic power. Right? Postmodernism is one of the most influential philosophies shaping our modern Western world today. It's perhaps most commonly summarized in the cultural axiom, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. I'm sure you've heard someone say something akin to that. Right? We often use it as a shorthand for, uh, term for radical relativism on truth and morality, right? Uh, yet it is so much more than just that, right? There are also two important concepts uh, of postmodernism that are relevant for the topic of wokeness. And firstly, the, post, the first one is the postmodern knowledge principle, the postmodern knowledge principle, and that is radical skepticism about whether objective knowledge or truth is obtainable and a commitment to a cultural constructivism. The second principle is the postmodern political principle. Uh, and that is a belief that society is formed of systems of power and hierarchies which decide what can be known and how. 
right? So thus, postmodernism rejects the correspondence theory of truth. That is, that objective truth must correspond to reality. It, it rejects that. And this is seen most prominently in, for example, transgenderism, where biological sex does not have to correspond to gender, which is a psychological category. It also sees truth as a result of dominant discourses enforced by those with sociopolitical power. Hence, truth itself becomes politicized. Now, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose in their book, Cynical Theories, and I'm going to be quoting from this uh, throughout this episode, they note this, that, quote, Postmodern approaches to knowledge inflate a small, almost banal kernel of truth that we are limited in our ability to know and must express knowledge through language, concepts, and categories to insist that all claims to truth are value-laden constructs of culture. This is called cultural constructivism or social constructivism. The scientific method in particular is not seen as a better way of producing and legitimizing knowledge than any other but as one cultural approach among many, as corrupted by biased reasoning as any other. So no longer is something true just because it's so. Rather, postmodernism asserts that society believes it to be true because those in power have enforced it to be so. Therefore, according to postmodernism, that which is known is only representative of systems of power. Okay, getting that? Tied into this are the four other major themes of postmodernism that comes into play with wokeness. And those are the blurring of boundaries, right? doesn't like boundaries, the power of language, cultural relativism, and the loss of the individual and the universal. All of these have drastically affected our societies today. Now let's talk about another term that's often uh, thrown around, and that's cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism is another term which can be used frequently in conversations surrounding wokeness. I actually did an episode on that, 10 Things You Need to Know About Cultural Marxism, which you can go back to and listen or read. Um, it's sometimes used as a synonym for wokeness. Uh, it isn't, however, without its difficulties, right? As many um, have contested the usefulness of this term. So, for example, you know, some have pointed out that there's no body of work that cultural Marxists would embrace altogether. Right? Um, so, you know, is this really the best term to use? And there may be some validity to this critique of the usage of this term, since there's often a lot of unclarity surrounding. However, uh, the term is meant to acknowledge the historical and philosophical roots of much of the woke movement, right? That is tied back to classical Marxism, right? That's why it's called cultural Marxism, because of that historical root in classical Marxism. Now, classical Marxism was a 19th century economic philosophy invented and propagated by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, most closely tied to socialism and communism. And over 100 million people were killed as a result of Marx's demonic philosophy. You can actually go listen to the, to the episode 10 Dark Facts About Karl Marx to get a little bit more about that. Um, because his philosophy was applied under regimes such as Soviet Russia, Communist China, North Korea, and Venezuela by men such as Stalin, Lenin, Mao, and Pol Pot, and the Kim family of dictators, right? So if you didn't listen to that, go back and check it out. But Marx was an atheistic naturalist who saw society in terms of the oppressed and the oppressors. And core to classical Marxist philosophy were the concepts of class theory and conflict theory, which teach that there were different economic classes, right, the bourgeois and the proletariat, the rich and the poor, who lived in a dynamic of oppression and power differentials. And Marx assumed that the poor were poor because the rich hoarded 
and attain wealth in an unjust manner. The only way that this injustice could be corrected according to Marx was for the inevitable conflict between these two classes, the, and he called that the proletariat revolution, where the workers would unite to overthrow the oppressive land and property owners and redistribute the means of production and the fruits of their production equally amongst themselves to usher in this egalitarian communistic utopia, right? So this concept is important to understanding today's woke culture because it's taken Marxism's economic philosophy and applied it now to the social and political realms. In wokeness, Marxist proletariat has become the oppressed and marginalized identity groups, and the bourgeoisie has become the privileged hegemony that makes up the and perpetuates these systems of power. And these two classes are seen as heading towards an inevitable conflict. So therefore, in wokeness, it tends to be extremely divisive in a society. It also tends to be extremely reductionistic and simplistic in its analysis of culture. It assumes its conclusion, right? Oppression. And then it goes hunting for evidence to fit that narrative. Let's talk a little bit now about critical theory. Critical theory is an analytical tool of wokeness and cultural Marxism. Secular authors, uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose in their book, Cynical Theories, they define it this way. A critical theory is chiefly concerned with revealing hidden biases and under-examined assumptions, usually by pointing out what has been termed problematics, which are ways in which society and the systems that it operates upon are going wrong. So critical theory, as the name implies, is focused on criticizing all traditional structures in society. Its aim then is there is primarily deconstructive to dismantle the current system and powerful hegemonies or majority power groups and cause a reset of the social order according to their utopian visions for a totally egalitarian society. Critical theory becomes the tool which is used to reveal the hidden oppressive power structures that need to be overthrown. That's how it's used in woke theology, right? It, it can be applied to a wide array of disciplines, most popularly in critical race theory. I'm sure you've maybe heard that term, but also in disciplines such as queer and LGBTQ studies or disability and fat studies or post-colonialism and other disciplines. Critical theory is this analytical tool that they use to try to uncover these oppressive systems. Now, lest you think that this is just some sort of a problem out there, in secular society, this is in Protestant, evangelical, even reformed churches. I'm going to play you a short clip from Alexander Jun, who is the 45th General Assembly moderator of the Presbyterian Church in, in America. Okay, this is what he had to say. And what's fascinating to me is if you know anything about critical race theory, right? This is a concept that I would apply in, in education. I consider myself a critical race theorist. Um, you can be and a Christian at the same time, yes. Um, respectfully, no, no, you can't be, uh, critical race theory is antithetical to the gospel. And we'll get into that in our next episode, but here's another quote from a, actually, I think it's the, the previous general assembly moderator for the Presbyterian church in America. His name is George Robinson. Here's what he had to say. But I confess the same to you that I'm not just, that I'm not a recovered racist. I'm a recovering racist, just as, dare I say it, you are, everyone. 
just as none of us can say, I'm a recovered sinner, and now I live the victorious Christian life. We're recovering, and we won't be finished until glory. Notice what this gentleman is saying here. And this is an unfortunate uh, trap that a lot of people and a lot of Christians fall into because it's masked and clothed in the language of Christianity. It sounds plausible. It sounds right. You know, that we all have sin and that we won't be totally free of it until the eschaton, until we're glorified. That, that is true, that we'll always struggle with sin. But notice what he is, in, is, is saying. It's not that biblical doctrine of the inherent sinfulness of man. He is saying that you're in, inherently guilty and perpetually guilty. There's a perpetual guilt that you cannot ever repent from or recover from that you continuously have to do penance for. You are a racist always. And that is one of the symptoms of critical race theory. And we'll get into that a little bit more in our next episode as we start to unpack and analyze these things more. But this is one of the critical uh, junctures and points of critical theory is this um, classification of people into perpetual guilt, perpetual oppressors and perpetual oppressed. We'll talk a little bit more about that in our next section of intersectionality. But these short clips are just simply to, to illustrate that this is in major Protestant, even reformed denominations and churches. Okay, we need to be aware of this. And this is not to set everyone on a boogeyman hunt, but just to be aware that this is some of the culture's narratives and the culture's ideologies that is seeping into our churches today. Not everyone who is concerned about racial issues is a critical race theorist, but we should be aware that that is one of the very strong cultural currents that is taking sway even in evangelical churches today. We have to think biblically about these issues, not the way our culture thinks. Now, related to that is the term intersectionality. Intersectionality. This is a theory originally put forward by Kimberly Crenshaw. Although, you know, its modern application is not quite what she originally envisioned. Crenshaw's 1991 mapping of the margins is the foundational intersectionality text though. Crenshaw makes a point of distinguishing I am black from I'm a person who happens to be black. She made it very clear that to distinguish between those two because people are encouraged to primarily identify by their group identity, whether it might be gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, disabled, you know, ethnic background, or even mental illness and depression and anxiety. All of these can become identities, according to this theory. Intersectionality, it considers the multiple intersections of oppressed identities that a person might suffer under in order to figure out how to privilege them to compensate for their perceived disadvantages in life. Therefore, it tends to be um, radically cynical and suspicious, assuming that oppression is hidden in every system and institution and needs to be found, condemned, and dismantled. It also simplistically assumes that these oppressed identity statuses can account for all the disparities of life. Applied to modern social justice theory, it also seeks to elevate and advantage marginalized and oppressed classes over the dominant classes. And this is classical Marxism's class theory, but applied now to social theory. Right? It's how you figure out who belongs to the bourgeois and who belongs to the proletariat who belongs to the oppressors, and who belongs to the oppressed. And this is where the phrase elevate fill in the blank voices, like elevate black voices or whatever, and identity politics, that, that's where it finds its root. It is also essentially the sin of partiality. 
Right? See James 2 for that. For that. Right? We're not to show partiality to the rich or to the poor. So intersectionality, because it's trying to seek to show partiality, to figure out who we need to show partiality to is actually uh, sinful. Again, Lindsay and Pluckrose note this. They say, quote, it reduces everything to one single variable, one single topic of conversation, one single focus and interpretation, and that is prejudice, as understood by the power dynamics asserted by the theory. Thus, for example, desperate outcomes can have one and only one explanation, and it is prejudicial bigotry. The question is just identifying how it manifests in the given situation. Thus, it always assumes that in every situation, some form of theoretical prejudice exists, and we must find a way to show evidence of it. In that sense, it is a tool, a practice, quote unquote, designed to flatten all complexity and nuance so that it can promote identity politics in accordance with its vision. So intersectionality divides society into privileged and oppressed classes according to group identities such as race, gender, sexuality, physical characteristics, immigration status, religion, etc. Uh, one thing, though, that's noticeably absent is economic class. Because, you see, that would be inconvenient for many of the global elites who push this nonsense to further their own globalist agenda. Now, let me here play you another clip of another theologian. Uh, this time from the Baptist world, just so that you don't think that I'm only picking on the Presbyterians. Uh, but this is also a problem here in conservative Baptist denominations. So here is uh, a fellow from the Southern Baptist Convention, which is actually the largest Protestant denomination in the world. So not a small issue. And he is the, the man that Professor Albert Muller, who's done a lot of good for the church. Uh, don't get me wrong, not you know taking hits, taking uh, shots at uh, Al Muller. But he appointed this, this man to be his professor of New Testament interpretation at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is very influential within the Southern Baptist world. So here is Dr. Jarvis Williams. And when we think about white supremacy, it's not only the overt violent expressions that you see on the television in Charlottesville, for example, White supremacy is an ideological construct that believes that whiteness is superior to non-whiteness. So then how this shows up in part is it shows up in curriculum, right? Uh, I'm a seminary professor, and in theological education, it's, it's, you're hard-pressed to find many evangelical institutions that have a regular requirement of black and brown authors. And often what happens is whiteness becomes the standard by which all good theology is judged. You understand what I'm saying? Amen. So that if it's right theology, it's written by a white scholar who is contextualizing that theology for white audiences. And so one of the things we see is, and hear this very, very carefully, there's racism by intent and there's racism by consequence. You can have racism operating in a context where is there are no individual racists. And that, in part, is the way in which white supremacy works in a socially sophisticated way. When you have whiteness as the priority, and when folks work and operate in such a way with curriculum, with economics, or with policies to maintain and to posture and to privilege that whiteness, and then to require those who are non-white to, cultural, to culturally colonize to whiteness. Now notice what Dr. Williams did there, right? He said that you can have racism 
without individual racists. This is a very core part of cult- uh, critical race theory and this cultural Marxist sort of phenomena, right? That racism, uh, when it's applied to the issue of race, uh, racism is not an issue of hatred in the heart against somebody of a different ethnicity. Now it's in the systems. It's systemic. Let me allow him to continue again here. But I wanted to point that out in this clip. So then we think about reconciliation and ethnic hostility. The solution is not more black and brown faces in white spaces who colonize to whiteness. The solution is fundamentally, yes, the gospel, the cross, the resurrection, right? The blood of Jesus, but also dethroning white supremacy in all of the forms in which it shows up in Christian spaces, folks. Because when Jesus died to disarm those principalities and powers, one of those principalities and powers, I would argue, is white supremacy and all that it entails. So so feel that tonight. White supremacy is not just violence or KKK or lynchings. It is also the belief, directly or indirectly, that whiteness is rightness. And everything has to be judged by that. So I hope that you're picking up on the sort of bait and switch that's happening here in that clip. Okay? that Professor Jarvis is conflating this issue of whiteness and white supremacy, which, you know, anybody hearing that word, white, white supremacy, who has any bit of a moral compass on them or any uh, understanding of the history of racism within America will rev- be revolted against that and being called anything close to a white supremacist. That's a bad thing. Nobody wants to be called that, right? But he's conflating these two things. Um, you know, he's conflating, conflating when real racism was happening, right? Where you actually had lynchings and violence and actual white supremacy and the KKK burning and and killing um, black people, etc. right? Those were historical realities of racism. But he's conflating those things now with inequitable outcomes. And he's taking an intersectional approach at this particular issue, right? He's seeing these desperate outcomes that's happened, right? That in this case, in this speech that he's giving, he's pointing out that there's less black theologians than white theologians historically that are being quoted and used and et cetera, et cetera, right? Like you'd point to men like John Calvin, John Owen, you know, all of the, a lot of the reformers are European, so they're, they're white, right? Um, but he's saying that because of there's this disparity, that there's more white theologians uh, than black theologians, that somehow there's some sort of injustice that's work, that's happened here. And the solution then is to elevate and to promote more black theologians. But, you know, what he says is actually that's not even going to be enough, right? That we need to divest yourself of this white supremacy of thinking that whiteness is rightness, right? But is that actually how we should be doing theology? Should it be a a, a, a point of just counting heads, right? And making sure that you have equal amounts of black theologians as you do white theologians. I thought theology, what mattered was was biblical fidelity. Which theologian stuck closest to the biblical text and honored it and handled it well? That's the theology that I want to follow. Not a theology of, you know, what skin color the the, the particular theologian was. I don't care what the skin color was. Were they biblical? Were they applying God's word consistently and exegetically? That's what matters. And this is the danger of this sort of thing, which we'll get into more in our next episode. But I just wanted to point these out through these clips to just illustrate that this is in churches. This is being taught in seminaries and being disseminated through pastors who sit under these professors. This is a big issue. The concept of intersectionality is really simple. 
it does the same thing over and over. Look for power imbalances, disparities, biases, or bigotry that it assumes must be present and then problematizes them. Hey friends, I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your support. If you've benefited from the Ministry of Theotivity, please prayerfully consider partnering with me by giving a donation of any amount. Big or small, it all helps. If you're like me, I know you long to see more solid Christian content getting out there, but that takes time, effort, and money. So if this is something that you'd like to see continue, and if you found value in the content here at Theotivity, skip a few fancy latte drinks from your favorite woke coffee shop, and please consider donating at theotivity.com donate. You can find links to donate in the description of this post or episode. Thanks so much. Now let's talk about the term social justice. This term has been problematic as some people use it in a legitimate way. However, the majority of our secular culture uses it in an unbiblical way, associated with the concepts of wokeness that we've been discussing here. Now consider, when both Antifa, the anti-fascist group, and the American Nazi party can both call themselves social justice warriors, you might just have a problem with this term. Okay, so just think about that before you adopt that term for yourself. David Scott Allen, in his book, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice, he describes social justice like this, as deconstructing traditional systems and structures deemed to be oppressive and redistributing power and resources from oppressors to their victims in the pursuit of equality of outcomes. Now, you should recognize that that is not what a biblical concept of justice is, right? Perhaps helpful in distinguishing what type of justice we're talking about are actually the two terms equality and equity. Now, while these terms are also used inconsistently by many, right? Sometimes they use them in opposite ways. Like some people use equality to mean equity and equity to mean equality, right? We're going to define it for our usage here just for clarity. So you know what I'm talking about. Equality, equality has to do with equality of value, worth, and dignity that every human being possesses as an image bearer of God. Right? It's the, also the term that we're going to be using to refer to equality of opportunity, meaning that in a just society, there should not be discrimination between people of different ethnicities, physical characteristics, etc., in terms of the opportunities that are available to them. And that's a biblical and a right concept of justice. Now, equity, equity is the concept of sameness. It desires to flatten all distinctions between people, such as sex and gender roles. Uh, it's also called radical egalitarianism. It aims for equal outcomes, not just opportunities. It, seeks, uh, it sees disparities as automatically problematic and unjust. And this is what secular social justice aims at, and it is unbiblical. It is not biblical. God has created differences in people, and even in outcomes, as part of his good design. So then, if we're not proponents of secular social justice, let's talk about what biblical justice is. What is biblical justice? Perhaps one of the most helpful ways that we can end this first episode is actually to define justice biblically, right? So ultimately, we want to acknowledge and uphold that the Bible does call Christians to do justice. However, it is justice according to God's definition, not the world's definition. So biblical justice, that's the term that we're going to be using to avoid confusion between this and secular social justice, right? Biblical justice is a type of justice that God commands. Now, it is true that biblical justice is social in a particular sense. For example, in Leviticus 25 verses 1 to 7, 
God's vision for justice includes all of the social fabric of creation, including land, domesticated animals, wild animals, and migrant workers. Right? So individuals matter, but biblically speaking, you can't engage the individual outside of his or her social situation. So in that way, the Bible is concerned with social dimensions of justice. However, there are also other important factors to truly biblical justice, apart from just this social dimension. Let me give you a really clear, concise definition. Biblical justice is truthful, direct, impartial, retributive, proportional, and limited. Say that again. Biblical justice is truthful, direct, impartial, retributive, proportional, and limited. Let me define each one of those terms because they're very important. So biblical justice is truthful in that it accords with reality and the truth of God's word. And charges that are brought forward has to be established on multiple independent lines of witnesses. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 16.20, 17.6, 19.15, Numbers 35.30, Proverbs 28.5, Job 8.3, Matthew 18.16, John 7.24, 2 Corinthians 13.1, 1 Timothy 5.19, and Hebrews 10. 28. And you can get all of those biblical references in the article that will accompany this episode. And you can get the link in the description of this episode. Secondly, biblical justice is direct, meaning that its rewards and punishments are meted out directly to the achievers and offenders, not to people of their descent or ancestry or tribe or ethnicity or social group, etc. Okay. And we get that from Deuteronomy 24, 16, Ezekiel 18, 20, 2 Kings 14, 6, Matthew 16, 27, and Romans 2, 6. Thirdly, biblical justice is impartial. It does not show preferential treatment to anyone based on identity group. You can see that in Deuteronomy 27, 19, Leviticus 19, 15, Jeremiah 22, 3, and Proverbs 18, 5. It's also retributive. So biblical justice is retributive. And that means that it seeks to re- restore that which was broken and punish the guilty. Okay. And you can see that in Genesis 9, 6, Exodus 22, 1 to 31, uh, Leviticus 24, 18, Romans 13, 4, and Galatians 6, 7. Also, biblical justice is proportional. It rewards and punishes. Uh, the punishments are proportional to the act or crime committed. Right, they're just weights and judgment. For example, the lex, lex talionis, which is the principle of an eye for an eye. Okay? And that was supposed to teach that the punishment needs to fit the crime. And you can see that, for example, in Exodus 21, 23 to 25, Leviticus 24, 19 to 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. Lastly, biblical justice is limited. Right? The rewards and punishments, they don't continue on in perpetuity in this life. Right? That's left up to God in eternity. So thus, there's a recognition that in this life, there's not going to be perfect justice, as some people are going to die before re- receiving their just reward or get away with things here in this life. But it entrusts ultimate cosmic justice to God. And you can see Genesis 18, 25, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, Hebrews 9, 27, and Revelation 20, 11 to 15 for that. Now, today's secular social justice gets all of these important factors about biblical justice wrong, right? It's often based on falsehood, so it's not truthful. Subjective accusations and flattening of the details and complexity of reality. It's often indirect, punishing those who weren't directly involved in the injustice. It's also often 
redistributive instead of retributive, right? So it's redistributive instead of retributive. It seeks to obtain equal outcomes by compelled redistribution of resources. That's wrong. Psychosocial justice gets that wrong. Thus, it's often disproportionate and unlimited, right? Having no endpoint in sight, just continual repentance, grievances, penance through reparations and no hope of absolution. And due to its root in naturalism and the quest for a man-made utopia, it seeks to find final justice now, even when that's impossible. So it's not limited. So in all of these ways, today's secular social justice is wrong and goes against biblical standards of justice. Now, we'll close off this episode there. That's the introduction into wokeness and social justice, just laying out the terms and helpfully defining those so that we can speak a little bit more clearly about it in our second episode in this series. So tune in next time, we'll be talking about the anti-gospel of wokeness. Until next time, soli deo gloria. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.